Amen. Well, we are wrapping up our study through the book of Ruth, our study that we've called Daily Bread, where we, again, have been walking through the book of Ruth. We find ourselves in Ruth chapter 4, and so if you could go ahead and turn there in your Bibles, and as you're turning there, I hope that you have been as encouraged um, as I have been, as we've been watching each week uh, with anticipation about God's provision for His people and how that provision reminds us of His grace. It reminds us of His goodness. And so again, I hope as believers today, as we've been over the past several weeks, that you have been encouraged seeing the goodness of God at work and being reminded of the fact that God is with you. God is with us always. And so for that, we can say thank you, God, and Praise you, God, because you and you alone are worthy of worship. Now, we are getting into our our final week, our last study through the book of Ruth. And one more time, we're going to see God continue to provide for both Ruth and for Naomi. But it's going to be through that provision that the narrator is going to reveal that not only was God at work meeting the daily need for Ruth and Naomi, but God had a much bigger plan in play that ultimately leads to what we are going to call this morning an everlasting reward. Now, before we get into our text this morning, I want to ask you a question. How many of you love a good story? How many of you love to, to watch a good story? Or maybe you've picked up a book with a, with a good story. And what I mean by good story, let me define that a little bit. Because some people think uh, you know, a good story is something with a happy ending. When I, when, I, when I describe and define a good story, I'm thinking of a story with lots of, lots of twists and turns. A story that, that has a lot of tension and, and almost has a lot of suspense within the story. Now, it could be a, a story that you've read, a book that you've read. It could be a, a movie that you've seen, or, or maybe you grew up in a family that loved to sit around a fire and, and simply tell stories. Whether they were true or not was irrelevant. You just wanted to hear a good story. Well, I got to tell you, in my home, uh, all of my family, my, my girls, my wife, all of us, we share a love and an affinity for a good detective story where there is always a major plot twist. Now, I want to be careful here because uh, for me, I'm not talking about the Hallmark mystery stories where, where there's all of a sudden a crime committed and in an hour they not only solve the crime, but they find the love of their life. Okay, that has, I don't believe that has ever worked out for anyone before. And if I'm mistaken and that is your story, then please come find me afterwards because I would love to hear it and hear how you did that through, through baking goods or, or being a librarian or whatever it is your character was in that moment, okay? What I'm talking about is more the the mysteries. You see, um, many of you guys know that uh, that I'm a I'm a I'm a big fan of reading now, and this took some time for me to to get to because you see, during school, when you're in school, you read a lot of things, and I'm going to go ahead and be honest. I think a lot of teachers would agree with me this morning. A lot of times, we end up reading a lot of bad books, and by bad, I mean they're just not good. Like it almost doesn't seem like there's any point to them. I, I remember talking to uh, my math teacher who found me on, on social media and I asked her, I said, Miss Everhart, I said, why did you become a math teacher? And she actually told me, she said, Johnny, I actually wanted to be an English teacher, uh, but the reason why I didn't become an English teacher is because I read a lot of bad books. And I was like, okay, well, that all of a sudden makes sense. Well, I got to tell you as a book person myself, if I'm not reading something that's encouraging my soul or, or helping to shape and form my theology, one of my favorite things to read are books that are written by a particular author named Agatha Christie. 
So let me ask you guys, how many of you guys have ever read an Agatha Christie book before? If you have, yeah, there you go. If you don't know who Agatha Christie is, uh, Agatha Christie was a popular writer who wrote a lot of mysteries, a lot of suspense. Uh, quite a few uh, uh, stations and, and actors have tried to turn uh, some of her books into movies. And I'm going to go ahead and tell you, um, not because I'm selfish and I read the book, uh, but it is one of those cases where all the movies and adaptations do not live up to the actual writing of the story. So... Don't think for a second because you saw a couple movies that were adaptations of her books that you actually got the full story. There's a lot that's actually missing there. You see, Agatha Christie, if you've read about her before, you know that she's one of the greatest mystery writers. And there's just something about her stories that, that there's a, a suspense or a mystery or a tension that normally isn't revealed until the very last chapter. And then when you get to that last chapter and you see the tension revealed, you realize quickly that within her books, what was just revealed is actually a, a small piece of a puzzle that ultimately is going to make up a bigger picture as she continues to write. Well, I want you to know when we read our text together this morning and as we read through Ruth, we see that, that God through his daily bread, God through this daily provision that he's offered for Ruth and has offered for Naomi has yet not only another blessing for Ruth and another blessing for Naomi, but at the same time in our chapter this morning, he's going to reveal that he had a much bigger picture that was being constructed, a picture that's going to reveal that through the daily bread, God was beginning to put together the picture of what would become our everlasting reward. Now, like we've been doing the past couple weeks, we're going to take this chapter section by section, okay, instead of reading the whole thing all at once. And we're going to read a section and then pause and, and unpack a little bit of what's going on. So just kind of bear with me for a moment as we set the scene. Now we have, again, entered our final chapter of Ruth chapter 4, where Ruth is now left waiting and wondering which kinsman redeemer would take her in. Would it be Boaz, one of our main characters that we've been seeing throughout our story, or would it be this other mysterious kinsman redeemer who we just were introduced to in Ruth chapter 3, and we're going to find out a little bit more about as we read Ruth chapter 4. So like a good book or like a good movie, we know who we want Ruth to end up with. All of us are, are team Boaz at this moment, right? I don't think anybody is team other kinsman redeemer because we don't know anything about her. And so we all desire for her and want for her to end up with Boaz. Now, again, I know many of you have read ahead, so don't spoil it for somebody else. Don't be that person who goes to the movies and tells us how it ends and then never gets invited to a movie night again. Don't be that person, all right? Just, just stick with me for a moment. Now, we're going to read, and what we're going to quickly see is we're not only here to, to figure out Ruth's husband, but we're going to see that there's a, another issue that is going to be resolved by God's provision. You see, God's ability to provide a solution for the needs of certain individuals is not going to be the only point of our story this morning. You see, this is no longer a simple story about his covenant faithfulness to, to Ruth and to Naomi. Rather, this story is about his covenant faithfulness to all of his people as he leads them to the everlasting reward. It's as one scholar noted, in his sovereignty and faithful love, God was already preparing ahead of time the line of the one who will ultimately meet that need. So let's go ahead and jump into our text, breaking it down section by section, and see how God's daily bread is going to ultimately lead us to God piecing together what will become known as the everlasting reward. So let's begin reading Ruth chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. 
Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Now let's just pause right there for a minute. Notice how our chapter opens. We see Boaz wasting no time in seeking resolution for Ruth. This is exactly what he promised Ruth in that very tense moment that we saw back in chapter 3. Now, What's interesting to note is our location. You see, they are now at the town gate, which was the place where the leaders would gather for meetings and they would ultimately conduct any legal transactions for that particular area. So this would be the place where the kinsmen redeemers could meet in the presence of elders in order to make decisions and the elders would be witnesses to whatever transaction was made. But what I want us to really pay attention to is notice how the narrator is now going at great lengths to not tell us the name of the other kinsman redeemer. In fact, Boaz says to him, turn aside, friend, and sit down here. This is the equivalent of saying, hey, guy, hey, buddy. Sit with me and let's talk. Now, we all probably can relate to that when someone comes up and says hello to us and we don't know their name. How do we respond to them? Hey, friend. Hey, guy. Hey, girl. Thank you for establishing that. This is exactly what's going on with Boaz because you you see, we're going to see that the name of this kinsman redeemer never really mattered to our story. Rather, what matters is the transaction that's about to take place. Look with me in verse 3. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said to Boaz, I will redeem it. Now, let's just pause and take stock here. Boaz is getting right down to business. So he wasted no time meeting with the kinsman redeemer. He now wastes no time getting right into business. Boaz is a very direct person when it comes to business conversations. I personally believe that Boaz and I would get along very well. He skips right past introductions, right past formalities and and casual chit-chat, and he jumps right into the directness of why they are together. He literally says, Naomi has a field. And now Naomi needs to sell said field in order to have the money to survive. The buyer would then get to add property to his inheritance, assuming that there are no kids involved. And since you were the first in line, are you interested? Now, this kinsman redeemer, who, remember, we don't know his name, saw the opportunity and wasted no time agreeing to the deal. Now, for many of us, upon initial reading, this all sounds good so far, because in the ancient days, acquiring more land meant getting more wealth. Acquiring more land meant acquiring more prominence. The more land you had equaled the more respect that you received from the community. I mean, who would honestly say no to that deal? But I want us to pay attention next as as Boaz takes a very simple deal and drops the ultimate surprise on the kinsman redeemer. In fact, he throws him probably the best curveball in verses 5 and 6. Read it with me. It says, And then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead. 
in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Again, pay attention to how direct Boaz is being. He immediately calls for a meeting. He directly gets to a point. There's a feel. You can buy it. You're the first in line. The kinsman redeemer agrees immediately. And then Boaz says, oh, by the way, one more thing. When you acquire the field, you also get Ruth. You get the Moabite woman. You get the foreigner. And you not only get her, but you must marry her. And if she has a child, then the child will be the one who inherits the field. And then notice how the man changes course almost as fast as he agreed. In one moment, what sounded to him like a promising deal to this particular Israelite turned into a nightmare scenario. Now you may think, well, what's the big deal with this decision? What's the big deal about changing his mind? Why would he even change his mind in the first place? Well, you have to go back to chapter one and chapter, the beginning of chapter two to see why this was such a big deal. Remember, someone who, who would take Ruth on would be, risk, would be risking becoming an outcast to society. Someone who, who took Ruth's hand in marriage would be risking social gain, social norms, and, and could become a social outcast and could actually lose financially because of that decision. Remember, it was Ruth who, upon entering the promised land with Naomi, when all the women greeted Naomi, they focused specifically on Naomi. They didn't even care that Ruth was with her. Remember how it was Ruth who then went to the field and and we understood the great risk that she was taking because if she were attacked within the field as a foreigner, she had no clan, she had no family who would come to her aid and support her. And now all of a sudden, the kinsman redeemer, the other one, sees that he would be risking everything in order to take on Ruth. Now I want us to understand all of this because I want us to to fully grasp the greatness of the risk that Boaz was about to undertake. At the same time, I want us to understand the character with which Boaz lived by and led. Pay attention to how the kinsman redeemer, the one who we do not know his name, This kinsman redeemer cared only for his own wealth. He cared only for his own status. He was unwilling to do what was uncomfortable. He was unwilling to take the risk in order to help. Notice how he said, if I take this risk, I run the risk of losing everything. I run the risk of of hurting my own inheritance. I I run the risk of, of hurting my own respect and my own reputation. Notice for this kinsman redeemer, the risk was not worth the reward for him. You see, here's a truth that we need to pay attention to today. Costly ministry will be risky. But if it's the will of God, the risk is worth the reward. You see, for this kinsman redeemer, this costly ministry to him offered no payoff. This costly ministry to him offered nothing in his mind. And so he was out as quick as he could get into it. Notice the irony of this moment. Seeking to protect his own legacy, 
this man would ultimately miss the opportunity of having a role in the biggest legacy of all. And that is a place in God's plan for salvation. Thus, the door would now be open for someone else, someone like Boaz, to take on that legacy. Again, brothers and sisters, there is a good lesson for us to learn just from this encounter. Do not, for the sake of comfort, do not, for the sake of reputation, miss what it is that God is doing. If the Lord can change and the Lord desires to change the trajectory of your life, the question we have to ask ourselves is this, would you willingly follow him where he is leading you? Or would you miss it to protect your own words? Would you miss it to protect your own relationships? Would you miss it to protect your own legacy? You see, we need to remember today that our goal as Christians is not to make a mark for ourselves. Our goal is to advance the gospel. Our goal is to advance the kingdom. You see, too many people today are are, are living in such a way where they want to make a name for themselves. And not only do they want to make a name for themselves, but they want to leave a legacy for others to follow. In fact, I remember living in North Atlanta and there was a a cemetery not even a half a mile from one of the churches I was serving at that point where you could literally turn into the church and, and, and people just didn't have tombstones. They had like monuments to themselves. I remember walking up on one and it was roughly 15 feet by 10 feet and it was black marble and engraved in gold was the name of this man and everything that he had accomplished in his life. But guess what? He was still dead and none of his stuff went with him. At the same time, Serving as a church planner in Atlanta, we lived uh, pretty close to one of the coolest places in the city of Atlanta that doesn't often get talked about. Normally, people think about Atlanta. They think about the sports teams. They think about the, the varsity, that restaurant that you can go. That's really it's, it's really just a grease pit. I don't really know why people like to eat there, but they do. It's kind of their thing. Okay, Some of y'all are like, yeah, that sounds great. Trust me, eat it a couple days in a row, and you'll have different thoughts. Right? One of the coolest things just east of Atlanta is this place called Oakland Cemetery. And it's one of the, it is the oldest cemetery in the city of Atlanta. It's one of the coolest places to go visit, not only for the people who are buried there, but also just to see what's written on tombstones. And I was reminded last night, as my wife shared with me, about a story that, that we knew of Oakland Cemetery. There is a tombstone there, and this is what it says. This man was a fool, but his wife loved him anyway. Some of y'all just went awe. who was that for the man or the wife I don't understand I started thinking about that and I was like wow that is so true one day I'm going to die and then my family is going to decide what's on my tombstone what are they going to say I'm going to go ahead and tell you Allison's going to have on there Johnny was a fool but Allison loved him anyway and his kids tolerated him that's probably what it'll read you see the reality is our legacy shouldn't matter and doesn't matter when it comes to what's put on a tombstone. What matters is a legacy that points people to the good news of Jesus Christ. What matters is pointing people to the legacy that is the gospel. What matters is the legacy of continuing to advance the kingdom, a kingdom that by the grace of God as believers in Christ, we are now a part of. So brothers and sisters in Christ, do not miss out on that call because that is the legacy of all believers. 
Coming back to our text, read with me in verse 7. It says, Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, Buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Now again, throughout this chapter, what we've just heard is something we've seen out, seen played out in, in chapter 3, chapter 2, and also in chapter 1. Leaving a name for yourself, leaving a name or keeping one's name alive was incredibly important to the people of the promised land. However, as we're going to continue to read, we realize that there is now more at stake than just keeping the name of a dead man alive. And so Boaz, being a great man of character, was not concerned at this moment about his reputation. He was not concerned about the social risk of taking on Ruth to be his wife. Being a great man of character, he was not concerned about his own name or even the fallout that may come from marrying Ruth. He wasn't concerned like the kinsman redeemer saying, what's in it for me? Nor did he even consider for a second what others may think or say of him. You see, Boaz knew Ruth. He knew Ruth to be a woman of character. He knew that Ruth was a woman of strength. Remember a week ago, we saw how she carried 80 pounds of barley. But Boaz also knew that his call was to faithfully care and to serve others. See, brothers and sisters in Christ, we again can learn from Boaz in this moment. What matters in life is not what others think about us. What matters is what the Lord says about us. Man, can I tell you something? You're going to have friends who are going to claim to be Christians. And one minute they're going to be by your side and they're going to celebrate with you and they're going to encourage you and they're going to support you. And then all of a sudden something's going to happen. Something's going to change. What that something is may be good. What that something is may not be good. Something, some, some sin or some issue may all of a sudden be introduced and, and you may take a stand on truth and you may say, hey, we have a standard for that. And then all of a sudden, these friends that you thought were going to be by your side forever are all of a sudden, they're gone as the seasons change. And you're going to be left wondering what happened. I want to remind you in this moment and encourage you with this. It does not matter what others say. It matters what God says. If you're going to put weight in anyone else's words, put that weight upon the word of God and what God says about you and what God says about me. And what does he say? He says this, you are mine. My friends, what else can matter at this point? You see, when we come back to our story, Boaz knew that his call was to extend grace. He knew that his call was to extend care no matter what that would cost him. And he never once cared about the risk, which is how we as believers should live today. Verse 11, our story continues. And then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah. 
who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. You see, even though Boaz was not looking for the praise of others, he still received the blessing and the respect of the elders who sat with him at the gates. Now, again, I don't want to go into all the details of this blessing, but I want us to see that this blessing was, that was pronounced upon Boaz and for Ruth was actually believed to be a, a conventional blessing prayed over, uh, that was prayed over many couples uh, in ancient days in the time of Bethlehem. However, we're going to see that this blessing actually had more than a simple conventional significance. You see, because of Ruth and her faithfulness, Ruth and her willingness, Boaz and his commitment to continue to care and to serve, we're going to quickly see that Boaz would eventually have a name that is remembered in a way that he probably never wanted, nor did he ever expect. And this was all because of God. God providing for Ruth, God providing for Naomi, and now God's bigger plan was beginning to be revealed. Verse 13 says, So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Now again, the key phrase in that verse is, and he, uh, excuse me, and the Lord gave her conception. I would, I would highlight and, under, and underline that verse, because you see, for over 10 years, being married to Malon, Ruth was unable to have a child. And now, by God's grace, through his intervention, she gave birth to a son for Boaz. Now again, the phrase, the Lord gave her conception, this is actually only the second time in the book of Ruth that the Lord has been at the foreground of the action. In other words, this is a moment where he's not working behind the scenes. Rather, we see him up front and in person. The only other time that, that the Lord is mentioned in this way, you have to go all the way back to chapter 1, verse 6, when he visited the people after they repented of their sin, and he gave them food. The Lord was acting again in order to not only bring redemption to his people, but now bring redemption to Ruth and to Naomi and to Boaz, a, a redemption that would affect all peoples and all generations. We continue to read in verse 14. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. We now see that this was not just a son for Ruth and for Boaz. Naomi was now receiving the blessing of having a grandson. Naomi, Naomi's grandson really, would be a comfort for Naomi in her old age. So pay attention to how not only Ruth was unable to have kids, but notice now how Naomi, with two sons who were married for 10 years, had no grandchildren. There was no legacy. And again, the Lord in his covenant faithfulness was blessing Boaz, was blessing Ruth, and yet was still meeting the need of Naomi. Naomi who in the beginning of Ruth chapter 1 came back to the promised land after losing everything and said, call me Mara. I am empty. I am bitter. I blame God. 
And yet we get to the end of chapter 4, and we still see God looking upon Naomi saying, I am not done with you. I'm going to continue to bless you. I am providing for you a legacy. What happens next is we get to one of the most touching scenes that we see in our story. Verse 16 and 17. It says, Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the woman of the neighbor and the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Again. Our story started with Naomi's emptiness. And as we continue to walk through chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, seeing God's daily bread, we also saw how Naomi was now being filled, her bitterness being replaced with grace, her emptiness being replaced with the fullness that is God's grace upon her life. You see, here's the reality. For Naomi, at no point would her husband and her children come back. No one could bring back her husband. No one could bring back her two sons. But yet all the while, in the midst of this heartache, Ruth faithfully and willingly walked with her. Ruth, in faith and in grace, left her hometown in order to go and be with Naomi, in order to continue to support and to provide for Naomi. So much so that Ruth became a a blessed woman. Ruth became a woman who was known in the community. And in fact, by the time we get to these verses, Ruth went from being a no one Someone who just happened to be standing beside Naomi to now all of a sudden the women saying that Ruth to you is now more than seven sons. Church, I don't want us to miss the incredible compliment that had been just given by the women to Ruth for Naomi to hear. You see, by God's grace and provision, through Ruth, And through Boaz and their marriage, Naomi now had what she always desired. A descendant to carry on her family line. And this is where our story turns. This is where we we find out at the very end of our story that God had a much bigger plan in play than just daily provision. The second half of verse 17, but pick up with me in verse 18. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nishan. Nishan fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. You see, it's at this point at the end of our story where we see a story told about God meeting the personal needs of his people is actually more than just just a story about God's daily bread. Rather, it's a story about God setting into motion to meet a much greater need for the generations to come. All of a sudden, the, the history and the trajectory of Israel was beginning to change. Remember when we 
first read Ruth chapter 1 verse 1, we saw a story about how God's people were being ruled by judges and they were doing what was right in their own eyes. Remember, that's how judges ended and then Ruth started to now all of a sudden we get to the end of Ruth and we are seeing the genealogy of their most famous king. In fact, you can look at Israel's history and they will point to the fact that King David was their most prominent and faithful and famous king. In fact, it would be the the Davidic line that would now be established and continued and it would be this Davidic line that would do more to build the house of Israel than any family ever would since the time of Jacob. Brothers and sisters, notice how God used all these events in the book of Ruth to bring about his own goals. Notice how he used this entire story, every single event that happened to remind us that there was a bigger role at play than any of these other characters could play themselves. You see, God has now set into motion his plan. And by saying God has set into motion his plan, I mean we are now seeing that God has set into motion his plan. A a plan that Ruth, nor Naomi, nor Boaz could see at the beginning of our story. In fact, I, I imagine this was a plan that they could have never imagined. And it was a plan that involved redeeming his people. You see, Ruth wasn't just a woman of character and worth as described in Proverbs 31. Rather, we see now that her worthiness is found in the fact that we now have an everlasting reward. Ruth is a small part of a much bigger story. Remember, it was Boaz who, in chapter 3, said to Ruth, there is a kinsman redeemer who is nearer to you than I. And we talked last week about how we were going to get introduced to a mystery character. Well, now that mystery character has gone, and just as quickly as he came, he vanished, and he gave up a flip-flop for it. That's all we know. Remember, it was Boaz, though, who said, but there is a kinsman redeemer who is nearer. And we talked about how last week we know who that kinsman redeemer is. It's been God. It's been God behind the scenes all along. And I want to tell you today that again, as we begin to see this genealogy unfold before us, we are now seeing that God who is nearer to us than any man, God who is nearer to us than any friend, God who is nearer to us than any family is the one who is beginning to unfold his plan of redemption for all peoples. Which all of a sudden makes more sense when you get to the end of Matthew and you read Jesus saying, and know that I'm with you always to the very end of the age. He's saying to you, know that I'm closer to you than anyone. Man, as if that wasn't enough. I mean, as we investigate this genealogy, and not just the genealogy that we have here at the end of Ruth, which, it, which introduces us to the Davidic line, but then carry this over to Matthew chapter 1 and we see how the Davidic line is all of a sudden tied into the genealogy of Jesus. I want us to notice some interesting characters that we have in that genealogy. We have characters like Ruth. Just read about her. We have characters like Tamar and Bathsheba and Rahab. We have a character like uh, Manasseh. We even have David himself. Just to name a few. And so we have to ask ourselves this question in this moment. Why would Jesus, Jesus who could have chosen, chosen, any descendant he wanted. 
He could have chosen to be descended from any other line. He could could have removed the imperfections. Why would he choose to be descended from a line with such a checkered past? Was he not concerned like the kinsman redeemer about what people would think? Was he not concerned about what people would say? Well, the answer to that question is no. You see, Jesus Christ was not concerned about his reputation based on his background. Rather, what I think is happening here is is, is through the Davidic genealogy that we see here and the one that we see in Matthew leading us to Jesus, we see that, that 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 we see that Jesus is revealing his desire to rescue sinners. His desire is to rescue people like several of the ones that are found in his own family tree. Jesus came seeking to save that which was lost. Jesus did not come garbed in in some sort of special clothing saying, look at me, your Messiah has arrived. Let me unpack what I'm talking about here. Jesus did not save people by staying a safe distance away from them. He was among them. Jesus identified with them in order to save them. Jesus was a friend of sinners, not because he knew sin himself, but, uh, but rather because, uh, because he was God and sovereign and he was working through people and their issues and their sins and their struggles in order to lead them to salvation. You see, through this genealogy, we see that the kingdom of God is open to those who know that they have nothing to offer God. You see, that's the reality for us today. Whether you want to look at it or not. Many of us, before we knew Christ, came to the doors like Naomi. We came empty. We came bitter. We came angry. We came in saying, who is this God? We came in blaming God for what he had done in our lives. All the, the horrible things that have ever happened to us is because of God. Many of us came in like Ruth, foreigners, outsiders, not necessarily looking like the people in the building, not necessarily acting or or saying the right stuff like the people in the building. Many of us came in with a, with a Bible for the first time with, with tabs in the Bible, looking around at everybody else's Bible going, they're never going to accept me because i got to have the cheat sheet in order to find out where they're at. And so we were ashamed and unknown. And yet as we see through this story, whether we came bitter and angry, whether we came as a foreigner alone without a family, it was God who has always been at work in the place where we thought he did not exist. And so our story ends with the revelation of God's plan, not only at work for our characters, but we see that God was already at work for the salvation and the redemption of the nations. And Ruth has come a long way in our story. She began our story as the forgotten daughter-in-law, the foreigner, 
a woman from a people who did not belong to the promised land. And her story ends as a wife, a mother, a woman of worth, a woman of good reputation, a strong woman considered better than seven sons. She was praiseworthy to the people. And yet it was the Lord who was doing the work. It was the Lord who was was working closer than any kinsman redeemer who was caring for Ruth and Naomi. It was the Lord who was at work in providing the daily bread for our characters. It was the Lord who established his plan to redeem the world, a plan that we saw established in the genealogy of David, a line that would ultimately lead us to Jesus Christ. And it's because of that line, because of Jesus Christ and his redemption, that we have now been adopted into the family of God. You see, we are no longer foreigners in this story. We are sons and daughters of the Most High King. We are sons and daughters in Christ. You see, in Christ, he has made sure that our stories have a good ending, just like Ruth. And oh, by the way, that story ends in eternity with Jesus. In Christ, we see that we now have an everlasting reward. Because of that reward, we can now know that we will never be alone. Because of the everlasting reward, we will always have hope. Because of the everlasting reward, we will one day find rest for our souls in his house forever. So brothers and sisters, I want to ask you this morning, do you see your reward? Do you claim your reward? Knowing that this reward can never be taken away from you. The reward that has been given to us by Christ, in Christ, by the grace and the glory of God. Church, I want us to be encouraged by the story of Ruth. I want us to see the glory of God at work. When we gather, I want us to to praise and and worship God for what it is that he has done so that we can say to God, be the glory that he's still working out salvation today. To God, be the glory that we will now stand justified before him in Christ. And to God, be the glory that one day when we are reunited with him in glory, we too will be glorified as we rest in his glory for all eternity. To God be the glory that he's still working out redemption for those who we know that desperately need it. To God be the glory that he's working out our stories for our good, but also for his glory. It's why we can say, soli deo gloria, to God be the glory alone. Praise God. Let's pray together.